will fundamentally change how businesses can function and change businesses and work completely. We're talking no 40 hour work week. If I can get a lead in my pipeline, work that lead, convert it to an opportunity, close that opportunity by using automations that allow me to do that in two hours a week, X hours a week, what does it matter? So I think those are the kind of things that even at the, all the way at the bottom level, we'll start to see changes of how businesses function and we won't see this push to return to office, this proximity bias that we have where I need to see someone in a chair to make sure they're working. All that will be possible because the way Slack is moving with the investment from Salesforce. Hello and welcome to Banking on Disruption. I'm Fred Kavena. If you're a regular listener, we thank you for your support. And a hearty welcome to those of you who are tuning in for the first time. I can't wait for you to hear today's episode. Our guest this week is Daniel Sanchez. Daniel's the co-founder of 21B, a consulting firm dedicated to helping companies adopt a Slack-first approach to productivity. If you're curious about how leading firms are using Slack to deliver ROI in record time, then grab your pen. After the interview, Dan and I will be discussing the unique way baseball is using AI, how everyone in South Korea is about to get younger, workplace trends impacting older workers and return to the office, and finally, Dana and my plans for Dreamforce 2023. While you're listening to the podcast, why not take a moment to follow us on LinkedIn at the Banking on Disruption Podcast and on Instagram at, at Banking on Disruption. Now sit back and strap in because our show is coming to you right now. And welcome back. On this episode, Dana and I are excited to welcome Daniel Sanchez. Daniel is co-founder of 21B Slot Consulting. He's been working in the Salesforce ecosystem for over 10 years and specifically on Slack for the past two years at 21B. He has worked on hundreds of different size projects across many industries, including FINS, HLS, with a focus on optimizing engineering, sales, and service teams through technology. I first got to know Daniel when we worked together at Silverline, and he was a great colleague who always brought insightful perspective to our client engagements. Daniel, I'm super excited you're joining us on today's podcast. I'd, I'd love to kick off our conversation by asking, how did you get into Salesforce Consulting in the first place? Yeah, hey, Fred. Thanks for having, having me on the show today. Um, I got into Salesforce Consulting after working in a software product company fresh out of college in 2008, graduated in civil engineering and wasn't a great time for civil engineering uh, during that market. And so <laughs> switched to software, learned about software development processes, and then moved to New York City and got a job at Blue Wolves, um, maybe 2010, something around that time, and really just worked in consulting since then. I think civil engineering is, is fantastically interesting. I remember when I was a kid, uh, and this is you know going to be total noob level as a civil engineer, but I did this program, a summer program, like like between fifth and sixth grade, where I went to the university in, in the town I grew up in, and like you did a bunch of projects, and one of which was to build like this long span bridge, and they just put weights on it. You wait and wait and wait, and I thought I had the most awesome design, and like ten pounds in, smash, <laughs> it just smashed on the floor. I'm like, all right, civil engineering, that was not for me. Check that off. Oh, was it? That, that is classic. that is so cool. Yeah. That, that but uh, 
I also did some robotics too. I, I, I just want to say that that really translates. So the civil engineering background I had translates really very well to consulting and product development because it's right. They teach you critical path. They teach you the things that must need to be completed to deliver a, a project on time. And those things translate from physical reality into software pretty, pretty easily. So the, you know, it was an easy transition as opposed to, I don't know, some people transition to other larger different roles outside of their graduate degree. I've never thought about it that way. I think that would make a fascinating blog post if you've ever like thought about writing on that subject, applying the principles of civil engineering to consulting. I've got to ask another question, just, you know, off the bat, why Slack? You know, what inspired you to start a Slack consulting firm? And and what do you see as the opportunity there? Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't want to throw too much shade at Salesforce, but, you know, working in Salesforce, it's massive. It's it's complex. You can't buy it and just use it. As soon as you start using Slack, you realize, hey, this is, you could just jump in there and start right creating channels, organizing things, having conversations. It's intuitive. User experience is, is straightforward. The simplicity of it is something I really always like. And even on the back end, I mean, you, you might call it elementary or some people might say it's not a mature tool right from an administrative perspective per se, but it's simple. It, it's, it's it's easy to administer. And so what we what we saw in using it and really with my partner, Matt Roy, when we, we used it at uh, App Exchange Company, we worked out and we set it up for an engineering team. We thought, hey, there's probably an opportunity here to, since it's been acquired by Salesforce and Salesforce has a huge partner and network to implement Salesforce, there's probably a route down that path that Slack will take after this acquisition. And so we looked at large partners who were already Slack partners, had been Slack partners for some time and said, hey, okay, that's great. You know, the global companies are always going to go to these massive companies they're already working with and do a Slack project. Of course, they're never going to come to a small guy like us. But we didn't see anyone in small business. We didn't see anyone in mid-market. And so we said, let's give this a shot and see if we can become that Slack partner at those levels to help companies that can't get the help from these other global companies that are either too expensive, they don't have the budget for, they really would never work with because it's just outside of their their scope. And that's, that's why Slack, both the simplicity of it, the and the value, I would say also, because I've always, you know, me and you worked together at, at Silverline previously, and they were hybrid, you know, hybrid-ish or fully remote. And then they started going fully remote or, you know, I was based in New York, so I was more hybrid, but there wasn't a good way to do remote work or hybrid work. We had hip chat through, right, and then Google chat, and then before that, I was on Skype at that first company I worked at, and it was it was always okay. It wasn't really meant for work or productivity, or it didn't have integrations. It was a messaging app that you used to try to do something where you weren't in an office. Like, it was an afterthought. But Slack is really forward-thinking and saying, hey, no, you can organize your, your entire way you work and change the way you work through a tool, which hasn't really been done this way before. So... That's what we thought is really exciting, and that, and we'll probably talk more about it in the podcast, but that's what we think the future of Slack is, is changing the way fundamentally how remote companies and companies in general can work. <laughs> yeah, uh, amazing. And, you know, you, you're highlighting the simplicity and, you know, creating value. Can you take that a bit further for those organizations that are shoulder deep in Salesforce technology? W- what are some of the things that they should be thinking about or curious about when it comes to Slack. I recently did a, a 
Salesforce Ben webinar. And as part of that, I did research on what Benioff originally said about Slack as the acquisition was building up. And he said Slack was going to be the front end of customer 360. That, that's what he said. And so if you take that as the facts, right? And people like to say, well, what about Chatter? How does Chatter change? What is Chatter in the future? Think about how many times you've seen Chatter at World Tour recently or at Dreamforce. You haven't, right? So <laughs> you, you start to add these things together and you say, okay, well, what, what is the route they're going? You look at their product offering, Sales Cloud for Slack, Service Cloud for Slack, Slack GPT. And the way this whole train is moving is to say, at some point here, Slack will be the front end of Salesforce. Maybe not for everyone, maybe not all the time, but for a lot of people, Slack will be the future of work for Salesforce. What does that mean, right? Is it, is it just manual work, right? Okay, great. It's a slap a new UI on Salesforce. That's it. That doesn't really help me. That's not really it. The, the power of Slack and the, the real power of the productivity, and you'll start to see some of this as Workflow Builder 2.0 comes out, is now it's right? Integrating with other platforms on top of Salesforce, linking those integrations together at workflows and being able to automate full end-to-end -end business processes, which you could never do before. And you couldn't do it in a chat tool, right? You can go to Zapier and you can do it. That doesn't have a UI to have a conversation about it. It doesn't have a way to trigger it, right? It's a little different than, than being able to have it all inside of Slack in a channel where you can work with your team and automate full business processes. So that's, that's what we see as, as the future here. As far as a, a, a timeline to get there, they're putting a ton of investment into it. Salesforce is very invested in this. You continue to see them talk about Slack at every single big event they have. We'll, we'll see it again at Dreamforce. And so we believe that this will, with that done, it will fundamentally change how businesses can function and change businesses and work completely. We're, we're talking, I, I believe it will change it. No 40-hour work week. If I can get a lead in my pipeline, work that lead, convert it to an opportunity, close that opportunity by using automations that allow me to do that in two hours a week, X hours a week, what does it matter? My goals should be larger than an hourly, right? So I think those are the kind of things that even at the all the way at the bottom level, we'll start to see changes of how businesses function. And we won't see this push to return to office, this proximity bias that we have where I need to see someone in the chair to make sure they're working. All that will be possible because the way Slack is moving with the investment from Salesforce. It's really interesting, you know, Salesforce, like customer 360. I mean, most of us are pretty familiar with that. We get collaboration, but, you know, so Salesforce is leading us down this path where it's like, hey, you know, get that full view of your customer with this suite of products and then, you know, bring your team together inside Slack. It's cool. What, what types of companies do you typically consult with, you know, in and around Slack and what kind of use cases do you have a favorite use case or what, what common use cases do you see? In times like these where money is tight for everyone, you have to make a great case to get a new tool or expand the tools usage right now. And that case typically leads to what's the ROI? How, do, how does, how does getting this tool mean that we create more business or change the bottom line right now? That's probably the main one. So a great one is the sales use case. We use it internally. We capture leads quickly. We, we have implemented this also for a client, and there's a blog post I could share after this where they previously never had a web to lead form. We set up a web to lead form for them that goes into Salesforce, pushes the lead into Slack. They can then text message that lead from Slack and give them a quote in seconds, maybe a minute if they're, if they're there at their desk when they get that message. What they were doing before 
they literally had forms on their website that they didn't know where they went because they were administered by someone who wasn't there anymore. So they were losing. Out. They were, Out. There was no there was no return on investment. <laughs> you pay so much for a lead just to have them go into a hole. That is horrible. Exactly. So those are the kind of ones that we get really excited about because those are, we're, we're talking about the percentage improvement there is uncount. You can't even calculate it because it was zero before. And so the sales use case is an easy one. We're also seeing service start to take off service cloud for Slack and, and the swarming. We've, we've talked to customers who are removing their tiers from their service offerings and going either offering like a white glove, higher paid option to do Slack support directly in Slack. That one I think is a big, huge opportunity because who doesn't like being white gloves? Who doesn't like that white glove service of talking to a human or, or getting your issue resolved quickly in a tool you're already working in with, with your customers and, and clients, right? So sales and service, those are two simple ones, straightforward ones. And those are the main ones that Salesforce is pushing. Industry-wise, again, doing some research for, for this podcast, Slack historically has struggled is the right word with having industry-specific solutions. It is such a dynamic tool that can work across industries. It's difficult to make it work specifically for industries, right? So that it's, that's a plus and a minus. And so, right, you see some of those larger consulting companies created industry-specific solutions for Slack, but it's still not really picked up in a way that, that is specific enough that it's, it's not defined enough that it makes sense for a lot of companies to say, I want to use Slack because pharma for Slack makes a lot of sense. They would say, I want to use Slack because Slack integrates with Salesforce and we can do sales cloud and Slack together. So it's a little bit different. I think that will change here in the future. You know, we talk with a lot of Salesforce and Slack AEs and, and teams, REPs, and we're trying to work with them to, for us to come up with industry-specific solutions to say, hey, let's figure out what an industry-specific solution looks like for this industry and try to figure out what those end-to-end -end flows look like. And, and Fred, we've talked a little bit about it on, on the banking side before. Yeah, I think you're spot on. It's funny, as, as you're answering the question, the first thing that come to, came to mind is, and I promise I don't try to make every podcast about AI and GPT, but I wonder, like, is the popularity of chat GPT going to have a positive net effect for Slack? Because when, when I wrap my head around, like, how do I think Slack can be transformative beyond messaging? The first thing that I come to is it, it makes a great interface for people to go and interact with those middle and back office systems, right? So if I'm running a commercial loan process and I'm out in the field and I'm, I'm taking one of my clients to lunch and I run into another client who has a question about his loan, I can just pull out Slack slash command or call an at bot. And if the integration is stood up, I can go back to that loan origination system and find out what the status is in real time. And then if there's a problem, I can work collaboratively with my loan processor back at the branch and say, hey, what's going on? This thing's been stuck for two days. You know, is there, is there a piece of information you need and resolve it without having to make an excuse to my client, make a phone call, you know, wait till I get back to the branch, like all that kind of stuff. And I think with ChatGPT, people are getting more used to interacting in a text interface with technology using some AI to go get things done. Dane, I remember you and I were working two months ago on the order pizza bot. If somebody is used to in their day-to-day -day lives going to Nate's interface and saying, hey, order me a pizza or hey, book me a flight on Expedia or all of these different plugins, is that going to move the needle more to people getting used to doing that kind of stuff in that interface? 
And then does Slack kind of inherit all of that goodwill as like the natural place to do that, where you can both combine your proprietary data, third-party stuff from integrations out to the web, plus your team to bring your team into the conversation. And I think that might be like, you know, surprisingly, Slack might be the biggest beneficiary in the Salesforce portfolio to this whole AI trend. I'm I'm 100% on board. I mean, I think I think to date, a lot of the solutions, a lot of the apps for integration with Slack have been, let's say, standard, right? You do something manually in Slack, it does something manually in another system, or there's like some basic automation there. It's not really game-changing in a way that AI is going to completely change this, to your point. That example you just said, it could be applied to all sorts of different Again, all sorts of different industries because if you have that backend data in Salesforce or whatever system you're integrating with, and you have the, the the capabilities of Slack GPT, you can find things in seconds that would take you a much longer to to find manually, right? And so, I think if you do those, if if that comes out it, and it is available in that way, right, that is a way to access data, then you have the stickiness because people just go straight to Slack. They're like, well, Slack saves me tons of time. Another part of it that we actually were, have seen is the automatic logging of activities and tasks and things to Salesforce based on just putting them into Slack using it. There's a tool we've we've just started using or reviewing called Pylon that, that does this. So you just drop in text. It has AI that monitors channels and then it updates automatically activities in Salesforce. It's amazing. We're, we're just starting to test it out, but that's the kind of futuristic game-changing application that I don't think historically we've seen from app developers that I think is starting to become obviously AI is very hot so of course that's something that we're going to see more of now but changing the way again companies work into what do I really need to do and what can what can I offload to AI what can Slack take care of for me and then you spend your time working on right the highest priority actual things you need to be working on the yeah one other point on on the the GPT is right we we've actually implemented there's like open source Slack GPT libraries out there that do very basic things so like for a marketing function you can set it up right now you want to write a, a blog post you want to write an email you can tell what what you want to write get it it's just like the ui that that is there now but i think you're spot on that, that the real power is being able to do the searching and aggregation of data but also something that is critical for us on a on a delivery standpoint consulting companies would also see this as if you start writing all of your project information in channels now, if you start running your sales processes in Slack Connect channels now, when Slack GPT comes out, you'll add it to that channel and say, summarize this. And you could have years of conversations summarized in that channel by Slack GPT. So there's there's even more value to starting to use Slack properly now, knowing that at some point this AI solution will come out and be able to provide even more value because you already have the data in Slack. I don't know that I understand what Slack GPT is, and I'll put some more color around it. And we talked in the last podcast about this. I love, in general, the approach that Salesforce is taking with AI in that they are not trying to be the model. They are trying to create hooks in the workflow for people to hook in whatever model they want to use. If they want to you know, go to OpenAI, if they want to go to Anthropic, if they want to build their own model with their own data science team, right? But they're they're building these hooks. And why I'm saying I don't understand Slack GPT is Slack already has the hooks, right? Like it already has a very robust set of APIs. You can go in and create, you know, Slack bots. You can go in and create slash commands. You can do those integrations in a very straightforward way. And 
I guess, what's stopping today somebody from taking their own personal OpenAI API or their Anthropic API, and if they already have Salesforce integrated, building something to go in and 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 do the things you just said, like, you know, for XYZ account, give me a summary of what's going on. What are companies waiting for that, that Slack GPT is going to deliver that they don't have today? Yeah, I... You're exactly right. It, it's it's capable of being built now. It would be a time time and materials type type question, right? We we set it up for a, a legal client of ours to use for their team to ask quick legal questions that they didn't want to search the internet for. A phase two of that, right? Uh, that was phase one. A phase two of that was to train it on their internal documentation. Yeah, but what, what you said is exactly right. You know, you can connect it, like you said. OpenAI has great APIs, right? All of these tools have great API APIs. Slack has great APIs, so you can go build this. Of course, it's really about the complexity. I think I think what Salesforce is trying to do there is make it easy, although very expensive. I'm assuming to install and use off the bat, and I think that's what the that's what the really the model is for Salesforce. I would think if you're an engineering company or if you're a company that has the you know the chops internally to create integrations with Salesforce, integrations with an AI vendor. You can create this quickly, right? And we're not talking about a, a complex integration that, that we've built. We're talking maybe a hundred, couple hundred lines of code that just takes what you've written in a thread, sends it to OpenAI and gets a response back. So that there's work there, but it isn't overly complex. I think even in the Slack GPT, the official Slack GPT beta, which I've not seen and I'm not, I've not heard of anyone who has access to this yet. I think it's still TBD what exactly the value other than being able to do AI GPT driven stuff at a theoretical level, what that big larger value is. It take a step back out of the AI rabbit hole. I just want to go back and like I am a true believer now in in Slack. I wasn't always. The first time I used Slack is when I joined Silverline. That was back in 2017. So it's been a while. And I came in and I was completely overwhelmed is probably the best word for my reaction. And I had come off from, from Cloud Sherpas to Accenture. We were using uh, GChat, you know, like Salesforce was at the time, right? And I was thinking to myself, you know, what, what, why do I need 100 channels to, to communicate with people? And it took me not very long, maybe a week or two, and I became a true convert. Like, I think that Slack is super powerful. Chat is really like the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot of things you can do. You talk with these companies all the time. I'm curious you feel the same way. Like, what are some of the ways that you see companies underutilizing Slack? And and where is the low-hanging fruit? Like, if I've got Slack today, what should I be doing? Yeah, one of the things that we've seen is just, and this is, I think, typical of companies that got Slack either during the pandemic or right when a push to remote happened, probably during the pandemic. But they, they got a tool and they didn't have anyone who managed it. They didn't think about it strategically. They just said, it's a chat tool, let's go use it. And that was kind of the, the bar. Let's just get everyone on this tool and start using it because we need to go remote. Great. Okay. How do we use it? Well, no one knows. What are we supposed to be doing? I'm not sure. So a, a big thing that we see is just say, okay, well, let's, let's take a step back. What is your team doing day to day in work? Like what, what are your operations look like? Well, if you're an HR team, for example, Dana, right in your background, re- recruiting, what tools are you guys using? What does your process look like? Should we have a hiring channel? Maybe should there be an approvals for hiring? Do we need to, do we have a separate channel for finance related to hiring? We should be in these channels. Is there an opportunity to 
create workflows. So there's a standardized dropping of information in these channels. Who's managing them? Do they need to be temporary or long-term? So there's all these kind of minutia type questions, but this is what makes Slack valuable because to your point, Fred, why do I have a hundred channels in my sidebar if only one of them is active? Well, it's because no one is responsible for managing them. You know, Slack created a feature called channel managers, which just came out right in the last year. And so we, we tell our customers always set a channel manager, make sure they're responsible for it. We also always suggest doing like a quarterly or biannual review that has a checklist of saying, well, go through your Slack connect, make sure that if there's anyone you want to disconnect from, you know, you do that, clean up the channels that need to be archived. Some of this is changing, right? Can we auto archive channels after they haven't been used after a certain time? That still takes a different tool outside of Slack right now. That will change in the future because that's a feature request that always comes up. We get that all the time from our customers. But it's that kind of maintenance and, and thoughtfulness that is probably missing. And that's that's all it is. It's meeting with the people who are using the tool and say, let's just, let's just open it up and say, well, what do you want to get out of this? How are you guys operating? And then finding out how does that fit into Slack? I love that, you know, ongoing care and feeding. You have a, a blog post or a checklist up on your site where people can go in and kind of see the the punch list, do you? Not officially, but it, there is there is a, a blog post. We wanted to take the route of uh, Salesforce, you know, the no software logo with the badge. Mm-hmm. We said, let's <laughs> just take that and do the no messaging because everyone says Slack is a messaging software and it's not. And, and this was before they, I guess, towards the end of 2021 into 2022, Slack was pushing hard on digital HQ. It's your digital HQ. That's what it is. I don't think that resonated with a lot of people. It was difficult to understand. You know, it was theoretical. It was hard for people to get. Now they're now their branding says we're a productivity platform. And I think that makes a lot more sense because that is what it is. It's not for messaging. It's a productivity platform that has chat as well. And so Thinking about it that way really changes your perspective and going back to the ROI question, right? If you can automate full processes with a tool, it's no longer a messaging tool. It's an automation and workflow operations platform. How can companies determine if they are truly maximizing the benefit they get from Slack? And when does it make sense for them to hire a consultant? You know, like, is there a health check process for Slack? Is there, how does that work? Like any other tool at a certain level with their CSM team, there is like an internal health check tool, which goes through all the analytics. How many active users do you have? How many workflows are you using? Uh, how many Slack connect channels you have? What's the activity and all these different things. So there is a level of customer that gets that as part of, right? And enter- I would say closer to enterprise level customers. And that's an easier conversation because you're always checking in with them. For companies that are in a small or mid market space, it's really just on them. And in those cases, they probably don't even have an owner of Slack. It's probably an additional tool that some IT person or some operations person administers because someone said, hey, we need someone to administer Slack. It's on you now. And so it's a little bit <laughs> more difficult for them to, to understand, well, what should I be doing? And what shouldn't I be doing? And I don't have the time to even figure that out because I'm administering 15 different platforms and Slack is working okay enough for right now. So one of the things we do, and, we, and we've, we've done this in the past, is we will jump on a 30-minute call and kind of to my earlier point is just do a, not an inventory, but like an audit. Okay, let's just share your screen, walk us through how you're using it, show us your sidebar. You know, let's go into the admin settings and see, are you guys using workflows? No. My understanding is a lot of companies are using Workflow Builder and it's a, 
it's part of the paid plans. And that is a massive benefit to any company using Slack. But for some reason, there's a lot of companies that don't use it. So that's a huge value add that we find a lot of the time. Organizing the channels, setting up different integrations, right? Core ones we're talking about, like uh, we were talking before, Dan, like Google Calendar, Google Drive, these, these basic ones. You, you go into a Slack workspace that's paid, isn't using Workflow Builder, doesn't have these core integrations set up. And off the bat, you can provide a ton of value to companies. So I would say we, we do a version of it, call it an audit, but it is definitely a health check and then continuing to review that over time. So back to the three to six month biannual quarterly review, go in and look at those numbers and say, okay, we've worked with companies that have 90 plus percent in DX, which is the antithesis of Slack. You're supposed to have conversations and channels because then you have the shared visibility transparency in a Slack GPT world, you can right get summaries, summarizations of those channels. If you're in DMs, it's always gone. You can't add, I mean, you can't add someone to a DM, but ideally you want them in channels. And so we'll, we'll sync with teams day one, they'll show their screen, look at 90 plus percent in DMs three months, six months later, we're trying to get those numbers down and the numbers in channels increase. So there's. As you get larger, it's a little bit easier because Slack has things that are right for companies of those sizes. For smaller companies, you have to be, again, a little bit more thoughtful and kind of that's why coming to a company like ours, that's why we exist is to help them get through those kind of thoughts. It's interesting. You know, you were talking about workflows. What are two of the three, two or three of the common workflows that, you know, that you see companies set up that just bring a lot of value out of the gates? There's. I would say the three most valuable workflows for any company are either status, automated asynchronous status updates. This could be daily standup. This could be weekly statuses, monthly statuses, something like that. I do have, I do have a blog post about the, the easiest things you could automate about this as well. Those are valuable for engineering teams, project teams, you name it, right? You set up a, a weekly, you say you tag either the channel or the person who's maybe the leader and say, hey, can you please in thread provide an update? In this thread, you can actually put the format of what you're expecting to see, and everyone goes in the thread, puts that format, and you only need a meeting. If if for some reason someone requests it, right? I need five minutes because there's there's something blocking. So you take maybe two and a half hours a week of daily standups for an engineering team, turn it into 15 minutes if you need it. The rest of it is asynchronous. That's one of the biggest ones. Another big one we see a lot is requests. This could be IT help desk requests, requests for, for operations, requests for another team, basically a form in this case. So you have a form in a channel, say it's help desk and says, this is the application I need, I need help with. Here's a short description of what it is, drops it in a channel. And then right. The help desk team can have an easily formatted way of, of responding to that. Plus with workflow builder, if you're using forms, you can get an export, you can export a CSV of all the answers to that form. So if you wanted traceability or you wanted to review it holistically, you could go to that form, download the CSV and kind of see data around that as well. Those are awesome examples. I really like the one of how you're supporting like sprints and projects, updates, et cetera. That's, that's outstanding. Are, are there also some examples where you're seeing Slack actually help to increase revenue or somehow directly impact revenue? That's probably the biggest one that we see on the sales side and, and either with sales cloud for Slack or with our partners at Centro, being able to automate and, and make processing leads through the funnel quick and easy through Slack. 
and and really not even requiring someone to go into Salesforce to update these things. So as an example, where we get leads directly in from our website, they land in our 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 lead channel. We create separate lead channels for them with all the information in Slack pinned in that channel. We have conversations in the channel about the lead, and then we can do it right asynchronously. We have clips. We have we have the opportunity to do things as we have time, which any sales team will tell you is important because they're jumping around 24 seven. So being able to do it asynchronously and then right, convert those into opportunities, all of it stays in the channel. It just changes the name of the channel to opportunity of the company. Again, working through the opportunity, the different stages, automating messages based on the stages is something that we're looking at too. So if it is in scoping, sending information from Salesforce into Slack to say, this is a scoping call. Here's what you should be covering. So again, going back to if the data is in Salesforce and you have it integrated, being able to optimize for that and just make it, I think Rattle had a recent webinar about just-in-time enablement. And so that's what we're thinking through. How do I enable my team? Not, I don't want to go through a week of training when they come on board. I want them to be able to understand, well, I have a lead that's in this status. What should I be doing next? Boom, they get information from Salesforce in that Slack channel. That is something that we're using for our lead process or ops, which has made it incrementally faster than having to log into Salesforce. It also means much better data because it's easier for, for team to use. But it's also something we use on the project side, which maybe not directly would, would translate to ROI. Would, it would lead to happier customers, which could lead to ROI indirectly. But being able to do the same idea. So we have projects at different phases. When it hits a phase, it sends an agenda or a list of things that we should be focused on at that time. We also have automated project statuses. So instead of having heavyweight project statuses meetings, you have a thing that sends into the channel. Again, a workflow example sends it into the channel and says, hey, just respond with a red, yellow, or green emoji. And that'll send it into Salesforce and do a project status update, which can then trigger, again, something into Slack and say, hey, this project's red please follow up with them. So this idea of making those decisions faster and automating them is only possible because of this integration and, and the data being correct in Salesforce. And I, I really love the example of, I guess I'm kind of thinking like going back to your sales example, I'm thinking like inbound lead. I know how important it is from an engagement standpoint to start interacting with those leads really in the first like two to four minutes. And a lot of times I think right now that's happening with someone in like marketing operations that probably can't really create a lot of value for that customer out of the gates, right? Like yeah. she can, she can, he or she can interact with that person and acknowledge and then pitch it over the wall where with what you're talking about and how you're helping your customers, you know, like improve revenue recognition, customer engagement with Slack. It's like interacting with that customer right away is a, it's a team sport. That's amazing. I love that. One other point on that is, I guess in these examples, we're talking about a, a prospect or a lead who is somehow outside of Slack or not using Slack currently. So their company maybe isn't using Slack and is coming to us to talk about Slack. There's also a massive, I think, the future of collaboration between vendors and partners and companies is Slack Connect. So mm -hmm. uh, a world where they come to our website uh, and it's it's an option on our pick list now, what's your communication preference? If it's Slack Connect, instantly spin up a Slack Connect channel, invite them to the Slack Connect channel, and you've already, you've gone from this person 
came to your website and in seconds is in your Slack and you can converse with them directly in Slack, have that whole conversation logged, invite people in, share documentation, automate onboarding. Like the possibilities are endless from that perspective. And that's where we we work with all of our sales and Slack, uh, you know, team through Slack Connect. We work with our company, our project teams through Slack. So when we say Slack first, we really mean Slack first. I think that's phenomenal. I never thought of of spinning up that Slack Connect channel in that first engagement, but I think it it makes a ton of sense and really you know differentiates. I'm sure how you engage with your customers versus how other consulting firms they might be reaching out to at the same time. You know, it really is demonstrating that that Slack first attitude. I, I'm curious, and this is you know broad question, but what's Slack doing well and what could they improve upon? I think they're doing really well with, with their improvements to core Slack functionality. Workflow Builder 2.0 is going to be massive. There were two steps you could use before. One opened a form, one sent a message, and that provided a lot of value. Now they're multiplying that by eight, I think, 14 or 16 steps. I think 16 steps are coming soon. That That's a massive add, right? You could do way more with that. They've just released the next generation platform, so you can spin up apps in seconds, which are now hosted by Slack. So you can create all sorts of custom workflow steps that integrate with either your 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 own backend systems or systems you just want to write your own kind of steps for. Um, those are those are really interesting things that I think are going to help Slack GPT, of course. So so functionality feature wise, I think they're going the right direction. What what would be great to see more pellets of the metal on is the integrated solutions between Slack and Salesforce. So we've, we've heard about Sales Hub. I think they've talked about that at World Tour a couple months ago and, and what yeah. Sales Hub will look like. And that is right. That is the evolution of troops into Sales Cloud for Slack, which now they're calling Sales Hub. A lot of click-throughs, a lot of demos of it, but not a lot of movement as far as releases or timeline. I think even on the documentation side, Salesforce and Slack, it's a little bit lacking as far as what, how do I integrate these solutions? There's a lot of questions like uh, you see them in Slack community or, or Ohana Slack. I'm having trouble with the Salesforce for Slack app. Have, have anyone else experienced it? And there's not a great community for that. I think that's where that's where Slack and Salesforce really need to get it together and, and work as a, a single unit and be able to push these really good integrated solutions. It's also where third parties come in and why third parties are are doing very well in this um, Salesforce and Slack integrated market because Salesforce and Slack have not really figured it out in an easy to use kind of nice way yet. Kind of dovetailing some of your points here and just heading into like the evolution of Slack. How has it evolved over the years? You're talking about where things are going, but what, what are some of the big things, big steps that Slack has taken over the years? It's it's great to see a tool evolve and uh, grow. It was originally just chat, right? It just went down. There weren't threads. There was no enterprise grid plan. There was there was no administrative tools on the enterprise side because there was no enterprise grid plan. There was no stringent security. There, you know, now now Slack has GovCloud and a very high government standard security, and you know, some of the largest government agencies in in the U.S. are are looking at Slack or using Slack currently. So. To be able to provide enterprise-grade security is something that is definitely a game changer for any enterprise company That's that has to happen. HIPAA compliance for HLS, that's a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also, again, going back to the smaller things, threads are a game changer for keeping channels 
not too noisy for, for organizing conversation. I got to interject. You put a, a poll up yesterday. Was I right? Was it 2017 or when did threads come along? Well done. Yep. You're on oh, Google. Score. No Google. <laughs> you did good. Yeah. Awesome. I didn't want to take you off your game. Oh, no. No, that, that's what I think they're, they're best at. One, one of the, my favorite parts about working with Slack and the ecosystem is the community, the product team. I was on yesterday talking about uh, with a product manager at Slack talking about workflow builder and the backend. What do the administrative tools look like? How can we make the administrative tools easier to use? And I just talked for an hour and got feedback and we went back and forth. And that's something that I think is, again, going back to the Salesforce and Slack integration, maybe I'm not privy to it, but I think that is lacking a little bit on the integration side. But the core Slack team has been amazing at, at taking feedback, asking for feedback, providing the time to sync with customers, right? And in this case, I'm a customer, I'm speaking about my customers. Um, and even on the API side, building custom maps, their team is always on live chat, able to help. They've helped me build custom maps through Workado. And it's something that I find really refreshing because you feel the connection to the actual application. Well, I'm actually helping change this, right? We've, we've done pilots. We were part of the new workflow pilot. And I don't think you get that from every product, not, not in my experience. So that's something that's really valuable from an evolution perspective is being able to drive that evolution with them. It's incredible to see how the product has evolved. And I, I'm, I'm appreciating that even more in this conversation. Some of my um, uh, technical friends, they like to collaborate on, on uh, Discord, but who, no. which is Slack's like biggest competitor in your opinion? We've heard of, of companies moving from Discord, Gchat, Zoom chat, actually, recently. Uh, but I said it was a thing. They're, they're pushing it hard. <laughs> Zoom chat. Uh, yeah, I did not know about that. It's something that's for sure. I would say right at the, and most of those are probably at the smaller scale. Those are companies who are smaller, who are just trying to get the most, again, the most out of a tool. They already have Zoom. Might as well use Zoom chat. Comes with it, you know, right? At the large level, you see the same thing, but for Microsoft, great. We have Microsoft. We get Teams. Why would we use Slack? So there's a big part of, of the enterprise side that is, it's harder to to get them off of Teams. I think there's a ton of value in saying, well, how do you integrate Teams and Salesforce? Okay, and then mic drop, right? Because there isn't a there isn't a yeah. way to do it. And so Salesforce is going down the path of integrating Slack and Salesforce, and the companies that are doing it now are going to be miles ahead of any company that's waiting, and waits till wait till the solution are fully vetted, or wait till the solution is you know 100. If you if you're involved now and you start to learn how to use it, set your teams up to use it that way. That, that's where the value is going to be. But I still think there's a lot of C-suite and above who are sitting on teams and they're like, we have teams, we pay for Microsoft. It's not going to happen. We don't, we don't see the value yet. I, I've been right. playing around and, and you're, you might be the first person that's heard this outside of my head with kind of an analogy around it. And the analogy I've come up with and tell me, uh, poke holes in it, is fire truck. Like a fire truck is an awesome vehicle. It, it is built for purpose, and if, if your building is on fire, you want a fire truck. But if you want to go to Whole Foods on the weekend, if you want to go camping, if you want to you know, take the kids to school and, and do a soccer practice and, and kind of everything else that people want a vehicle for, you don't want a fire truck in that case. And Teams, to me, is kind of like a fire truck. It does some of the things that it does very well. 
And, you know, underpinning of teams is still like SharePoint with like some collaboration on top. And if that's what you're trying to do, great. But you can have teams, you can, you still need a fire truck sometimes, but you don't want the fire truck every day. And Slack to me is that more versatile, more flexible every day. So if you've got a lot of stuff baked into teams, great. Keep, keep the fire truck. Doesn't mean that you don't also need something that's a little bit more versatile that's going to allow that collaboration and allow that integration. Again, I it feels a little hokey, but you know, does that kind of feel right to you? Yeah, from what we've seen in this market, it really comes down to the finances. But I, I think, and I think the value, right? It's it's we have teams where, where we have Microsoft, we're sticking with it, and we don't want to spend additional money on additional apps, on additional management of those apps. So even even with those, even if it is a fire truck and it doesn't work for all those use cases, they've already paid for that truck. So, <laughs> so they're, they're putting the groceries right in the back of the fire truck with the with the Dalmatian. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. I I want to pivot a little bit. I know we're coming up on time. I really appreciate you joining us this morning. You know, you pivoted a couple of years ago to starting Twenty One B. What's it like, you know, starting and running a consulting firm today? And, and what are the biggest challenges you face in the last couple of years? The biggest thing we're facing now is just, a, again, aversion to to spending any money on additional tools. You, you know, you hear things about tool sprawl or, or shelfware companies that maybe in 2018, 2019 were out, you know, blowing cash on any tool that was sparkly and shiny are now rethinking every tool in their in their back pocket and say, well, what do we actually need? What can we actually deprecate? And so it, it's difficult. It's a difficult time to navigate consulting budget on top of any licenses for any of these products, right? So that's probably one of the biggest things right now. So what does that mean for us? What, and how do we stay relevant? Well, we like to think of ourselves as different than other consulting companies, right? Like at the beginning, when we talked about how we saw global companies doing Slack consulting, integrating with Salesforce, they're still thinking about things maybe in a more Salesforce light. We try to think of things in this future of work. How do we automate processes? How do we change fundamentally how companies run? And so that is a differentiator that we think is worth the value to these to these customers that we're trying to work with, right? Going into their Slack and say, let's change how you work. Let, let's make, let's optimize for your company. Let's make Slack work for you specifically at the user level and at the company level. And so I think our business offering and the, the services we provide are very specific and, and set us apart. But definitely in, in this time, as it is now, finding companies that want to spend money on consulting is, is, is tight. What advice do you have for people in the Salesforce ecosystem who might be interested in starting a consulting firm? Yeah, I would say, I would say that you need to differentiate. There, there's... Especially in the Salesforce world, you're going to have a lot of competition. That's for sure. Everyone knows that. Small to large, there's tons of players out there. And so that could be difficult, right, to, to find a way to fit in. Get a, I heard someone say once, niches get riches. So, you know, find a niche, whether that's industry specific or sub-industry within that, figure out how to optimize it, do it very well. And you could find, right, you could find those customers and, and with that expertise, then it's not so much of a hard sell, right? Then there, and there's not as many competitors that know what you know. And so that's what we lean on, right? We, we're Slack certified. We work with this, we're, we're Slack community leaders. We work on new Slack pilots. And so there's very few other consulting companies, first of all, who say they do Slack consulting in general, period. 
but there's very few that do Salesforce consulting. They could say they have a team who are as deeply ingrained as we are. And that we think that is really what the value is. Insightful as always, Daniel, really appreciate your time this morning. For the audience, if you're curious about Slack, if you're planning a Slack launch and you need some help, if you're considering a migration, an integration, you want to know how to get the most value out of the investment you're making in Slack, reach out to Daniel and the fine folks at 21B. Uh, I'm sure they'll be happy to have uh, an ongoing conversation with you. Daniel, if people are looking to get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Our website is great, 21b.app, or you can find me on LinkedIn or Daniel at 21b.app email anytime or yeah, Slack connect me. Be happy to chat. Awesome. I am going to go to the 21B website later on today and try that Slack Connect uh, initial outreach. That sounds phenomenal. I got to see that in action. Like I said, thanks for the time and look forward to chatting again soon. Yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me on. And now we're back with Quick Take. Hey, what's going on, Fred? So, you know, always lots of interesting news to follow. MLB is partnering with Uplift Labs to utilize AI in analyzing players' biomechanics and movements. It's pretty cool how it works, basically using two iPhone cameras to capture movement patterns and then translating those patterns into quantifiable metrics. So what are your thoughts on that? It's super interesting. I mean, I'm not a baseball fan, so I'll start off with that. And so... For our listening audience, please don't criticize me too much as I'm, you know, opining my thoughts on this. My takeaways are a couple of things. One, I've been fascinated with, you know, the statistics of baseball, you know, ever since Moneyball was a thing and, and I loved the movie and I read the book and, you know, it's one of the things that would theoretically attract me to baseball if the game itself wasn't so boring. But I, I love how they're really embracing you know, leveraging more and more technology and bringing more and more data sources into what has already been a very rich statistics in environment. Uh, I think probably the thing that, that blew me away the most of this is that for an industry where there's, you know, so many hundreds of millions of dollars at stake in recruiting the right players, they're not using, you know, obviously the models are specialized but they're using commercially available iPhones as the cameras on this, as opposed to, you know, some type of, you know, 3D imaging array or some kind of like specialized camera equipment. So that's part part that probably blew me away the most. What are your thoughts? Are you a baseball fan? Not as much. I mean, I'm really into sports. I love to watch athletes do their thing. Ballet, for example. I mean, Barishnikov, the way he could jump across a stage. I'm amazed with that. But coming back to this article, the thing that I'm kind of questioning is I think this information is useful. Um, I, I'm totally down with the idea of democratizing biomechanics analysis, which is, I guess, what Uplift Labs is, is aiming to accomplish. I think that having that information is great for athletes to kind of self-manage themselves to become better athletes, you know, to get that perspective and then work on things. And I think that's really helpful. One of my favorite athletes of all time, Tom Brady, I mean, everyone knows how poorly he performed during the NFL combine, I think it's called. And, you know, I think most people consider him to be the greatest of all time. 
And as I understand <laughs> it, his, his special power was a photographic memory, you know, outside of like his dedication and that sort of thing. So I, you know, I think it's a great self-help tool and an, an excellent way for athletes to kind of self-improve. I think you have to remember that, you know, sometimes the, t- the statistics don't tell the whole story. Yeah, totally. Uh, the, t- the statistics are part of the are part of the story, and it, I'll say this: I think the statistics could tell the whole story as long as you're measuring the whole person, right? And in the case of looking at biomechanics, it's only part of the equation. Things like, you know, having a photographic memory and be able to really understand and and read defenses and and commit those to memory. In the case of Tom Brady, are also another statistic and and maybe a little bit more difficult to measure. Certainly not with iPhones. I also just want to point out that we probably lost half the listening audience when I told them that I didn't like baseball and the other half when you told them how much you like Tom Brady. So I don't think anybody else is listening to the rest of this episode. (laughs) Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that unfolds and what the outcomes are. You know, another another story that I picked up on recently is Koreans have inflated their ages compared to the rest of the world. So, for example, an individual is one year old at birth. Everyone gains a year together on January 1st. And um, I think that Japan and China had a similar system that they sort of, you know, eliminated decades ago. And now Korea is, you know, also going to accept the international standard of, you know, ages based on your birth date. So a lot of people in Korea are about to get a little bit younger. Are you familiar with the story? Yeah, I think I might have picked up on that same thing. I was fascinated. I, I too, believe it was uh, kind of a mainstay in Asian cultures generally, and I didn't even realize South Korea still adopted the the more historical definition of age. Uh, I, I was fascinated when I read the article about like all the impact. The way that I understand the mechanics of it works is because you're one when you're born, and then on January 1st, like you said, you you age a year. Some people are losing one year, and some people are losing two, and so there's dynamics of people that were the same age, and now one of them's going to be younger for a period of time. So I think it's uh, I think it's interesting to see how it's going to play out. Um, I I don't know how much like this impacts you know people outside of of South Korea. Like I was trying to think about you know, disproportionate impact, I guess, for any South Koreans visiting the U.S., hang on to your old uh, IDs because the drinking age here is still 21. So if you're 19 and you were born on New Year's Eve, you might have a a strong advantage uh, in the U.S. uh, over the next couple of years. For sure. And I, I wonder how it impacts things like, you know, a driver's license or other like government issued documents. You know, that that could be interesting as well. There's probably a cost associated with editing all that information, right? I'm sure there is. I, I do remember reading in one of the articles that at least for services like, you know, school school qualification, they were going to retain for the current population, you know, the current age. So people are gonna have to you know, reshuffle and, and, you know, be pulled back from, from sixth grade to fourth grade or something like that. But I'm sure there's going to be, you know, some amount of, of having to reissue IDs and, and other official documents to reflect the change. So I guess it's a, it's a good change. I think it probably makes sense for them to, you know, be more aligned in the tune with how the rest of the world 
looks at age, um, but probably, you know, a lot of internal turmoil as, as those things are reverberating through society. I kind of wish the U.S. would do the same thing when it came to the metric system, but I, I don't know if that's going to happen in my lifetime. Totally, totally. Do not understand our <laughs> allegiance to, you know, the, what is it, the empirical system? Um, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Freedom units. Yeah, don't understand that. <laughs> Well, Dan, I wanted to bring up a couple of things that I've noticed recently around workplace trends. One is, and, and I don't know how closely you follow this, is as employers have been working to retain uh, more older workers in the workforce in this general employment scarcity, uh, some of them have been ro rolling out what they're calling grandternity leave. Basically, it's the equivalent of maternity leave and paternity leave except for grandparents. I think it's a great idea. I think it's cool. Employers giving grandparents time to spend uh, with grandkids in, in early days is a phenomenal benefit. I'm just kind of curious, like, have you seen that much? Is that a, is that a huge trend? Well, it's interesting. We were just talking about, you know, the South Korea article and the differences in like Asian culture and American culture. You know, we, we tend to, obviously we tend to, you know, respect being young and independent and we don't really respect, you know, our elders nearly as much. Um, I love that, you know, companies like Cisco and others are, you know, rolling out these kind of benefits to, to be a, you know, an attractive employer toward that, that generation and then also retain them. Uh, I think it's. I think it totally makes a lot of sense. And I hate to bring up AI because it just seems like you know, <laughs> it's in the place in every conversation right now, but where, where employers might be thinking about how to just get a lot of value out of an older workforce. You know, I wonder if there's not like an AI assistant use case there that just kind of like two X's their impact you know, and makes them a lot more viable. And then some of the other advantages of holding on to being able to effectively recruit older generations become, you know, more realized by employers as a result. So I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think those are great points. I'm, I'm curious. I, I remember hearing for years about older employees being worried about discrimination in hiring practices, you know, age discrimination specifically. I guess when I first heard the article, I thought about it primarily as a, like a retention move of, we want to make sure that these, these folks are not, you know, leaving the company and leaving us, you know, in a lurch from uh, expertise and, and from kind of a cultural knowledge perspective, right? You think about, you know, you know think about the clients I work with frequently you know, processes that are not well documented and there's, you know, a handful of people in the company that know how to do some critical functions, right? So to, to prevent that knowledge bleed, I hadn't really thought about it as much as a recruiting tool. Like, are, have you seen a lot of changes in attitudes towards recruiting older employees? And I, I'm not asking because I am pushing 50. You know, I, I'm going to say no. Like I, I think that unfortunately, I think that age discrimination is clearly a thing, uh, when it, when it comes to employment and, you know, I think it, it stems from just, you know, our, the American culture. Um, but I do think that there is a place 
for, you know, older, older workers. Like for example, uh, the other day I was leaving the grocery store and noticed, you know, two people that were pushing shopping carts as I do <laughs> into <laughs> the shopping cart sort of container in the parking lot versus just leaving those carts wherever. Side of success, man. Side of success. Yeah. And and both of those individuals were older. And it's it's kind of like, you know, I was noting that and I was thinking, you know, are are like older Americans sort of more compliant to a degree? Like, do we do we understand and value, you know, these these frameworks and rules, maybe sometimes a bit more than, you know, than than younger people, you know. So and if that is if there is something to that. You know, what, what types of roles are best suited for them, you know, based on the fact that, you know, maybe they do kind of have like compliance baked in and, and again, you know, how do we help them bring more value using some kind of an AI assistant? Like, it'd be interesting to see how the story unfolds, you know, how AI impacts, you know, the age of our workforce and the impact and value that they bring. I think it's, it's an interesting question. Uh, I want to bring up another workplace trend that has received a lot of attention lately, which is return to work. Uh, I, I recently, when I was in New York for New York World Tour, uh, which is at the Javits, you spent a lot of time in that part of Midtown, kind of between Javits, Hudson Yards, Madison Square Garden, uh, Penn Station. And right in the middle of that is a pair of buildings called Penn 1 and Penn 2. And they're owned by uh, Vernado... Uh, and they have recently spent a billion dollars renovating those buildings. And I got to tell you, the buildings, first off the bat, are gorgeous. I mean, they're right between Penn Station and Hudson Yards. It's a great location, great views. But this is a very strong bet, you know, a billion dollar bet that people are going to come and fill those offices. And so I'm curious, I've had a lot of conversations lately with people, but what are you hearing from the the return to work, I should say, really the return to the office trend and the conflict between employers and employees and, and wanting to work from home. Where do you think that's going now? You know, interesting, interesting article, um, interesting question. Definitely I have noticed, and I think there were some early adopters. I want to say like Accenture, for example, even during the pandemic was starting to rethink it's, you know, shared workspaces and, you know, coming up with um, different design ideas about what they might look like and, you know, what's accomplished there and obviously wanting to present something that people are sort of drawn to, something sort of magnetic. Um, I don't know. I My feeling on this, and I'll just say personal opinion based on conversations with people, I think that some roles some jobs are really well suited for hybrid or in office. And I think other jobs are better suited for remote. And then there's people's personalities, you know, and, um, you know, some people are just going to be way more productive in a remote setting. There's a lot to consider there. I don't know, you know, what sort of algorithm we come up with to, you know, kind of plant everyone in the right place. Um, but I can also understand where, 
you know, these, these, you know, these building owners, so to speak, are trying to figure out how to, um, not see their office space become obsolete. <laughs> That's so. Well, I'll tell you what, they're, they're doing everything to make sure that at least from a amenities perspective, it's not obsolete. I mean, the buildings are gorgeous. You mentioned Accenture. I'm pretty sure that Accenture's new New York office is in either Pen 1 or Pen 2. I forget which one, and it's supposed to be stunning. I have yet to have an invitation to go visit it, however. I don't know. It's it's interesting. You know, I, I'm sure you saw the news article recently where Martha Stewart was interviewed in footwear news, which might be the lead of the story. I did not realize that footwear news was even a, a publication, but I guess somebody must have been moderating the news wires that day because it got picked up and went everywhere. Then she said that America is going to go down the drain if remote work continues. And then she went on to say that people cannot possibly get everything done working three days a week in the office and two days remotely. I think the the comments from my perspective were especially rich considering that Martha Stewart herself works from home from her stunning 153-acre farm in Bedford, New York. I think that people need to self-select what's going to work best for them. And, you know, for I think for a lot of people, it's hybrid. I think for a lot of people, it's full-time work remotely. I think people need to be open to going into the office, even if that means traveling for critical meetings, critical engagement points. But I think the drive for employers to want to force people back into a space, either for monitoring or justified expense, is short-sighted. I mean, obviously, there's some things that need to be done in person. There's some jobs that can't be done remotely. But outside of those, I, I'm for I'm for full flexibility. You know, and, and maybe it comes out of working in, in consulting for the last 10 years. But I haven't had a full-time office in, in, in 10 years now. And I would say that it has not negatively impacted my productivity at all. If anything, I'm able to be more productive during the day for having that level of flexibility. Totally. I, I agree with everything that you're pointing out, I'm going to get sidetracked for a moment. Through a friend, I had heard an interesting story about that 153-acre farm. Martha Stewart was preparing for her daughter's wedding, hosting mm -hmm. the wedding at that farm, and the hired a landscaper to either replace the trees sort of on either side of that long kind of entry driveway going into the property or plant trees. Uh -huh. Either way, each one of the trees, and I don't remember how many there were, but it was a lot. Like it was, you know, 30 or 40 of them, if I'm not mistaken. Each one of these trees was carted in on an 18-wheeler flatbed with an avalanche cost planted of $250,000 a tree. Wow. Unbelievable. And this was, you know, we're going back probably 15 years, right? So $250,000 then is obviously different than it is to now. But coming back to the story, like, I totally disagree with Martha Stewart's position on this. I think it's a bit old school. I've also spent a lot of time working remotely in the course of my career, long before COVID came around. It has its challenges. I don't think that working remotely is for everyone. And again, I think that there are some occupations that are better, you know, sort of done in person, right? With that in-person collaboration, so to speak. Until technology can 
and somehow emulate that, right? Like maybe altered reality kind of work settings or something along those lines, put a different spin on this. But I don't know, you know, I just, I think that, uh, I think that her perspective is old school and I agree with you. I, I think that we can be very, very productive, you know, working from home or certainly in a hybrid scenario. So moving on to another topic, Dreamforce registration is open. Yes. Yeah. Taking place in San Francisco at the, I hope I'm not mispronouncing this, Moscone Center, September 12th through the 14th. Um, it is. Yeah. So are you planning on attending? I registered. Uh, I guess the registration opened late, late in the wee hours earlier this week. I registered the following morning. So I was, I was early enough. I missed at least the first uh, release of the Marriott Marquis. <laughs> hotels but i'm in a i'm in a nice close hotel just a couple blocks from the the heart of the 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 event and uh, i nabbed that early bird rate for now i checked this morning and we're recording this you know wednesday before we release and so hopefully it's still true those early bird tickets at 14.99 are still available i'm super excited i mean i think with you know all the announcements over the last year, um, you know, I think AI is going to be very strong. I think data cloud is going to continue to be very strong. I'm expecting a lot of big things from industry cloud specific announcements. So I'm, I'm super excited. Dana, are, I know you are not a frequent Dreamforce attendee. Are we going to get you out there this year or are you planning on staying home? You know, I have, religiously participated in Dreamforce remotely. <laughs> we were just talking about that and um, I, I really enjoyed it, you know, the remote experience, but I have no doubt that it doesn't compare to the in-person experience. And maybe this year should be my first in-person Dreamforce uh, I've got to say, like, I, I, I think it's great to be excited about this. I know that, you know, in, in the recent months, you know, there's been kind of some dings, so to speak, and cracks and in, in Salesforce's armor, there's been layoffs and, you know, that the organization is obviously taking steps to kind of reinvent itself in certain ways. And I have no doubt that it will just reminded that none of us are perfect. No brand is perfect, et cetera. And I'm just excited to see all the things that are going to be happening at Dreamforce this year to remind us all of the great things that Salesforce has brought to the table and will be bringing to the table in the future, you know? So remote or in person, I'm going to be there. <laughs> <laughs> well, totally. I'm going to continue to twist your arm to going and maybe we can even do a live in-person podcast while we're at Dreamforce. That would be phenomenal. I will be there. I'm really looking forward to it. I am still holding out with bated breath. I submitted five sessions for Dreamforce. I know that people got notified this week, uh, both acceptances and rejections. I actually got a very strange email which said that some of my submissions were declined and then there was a spot to put the the name of the submissions and it said, you know, it only applied to the ones in the email, but there were no names in there. So I am being an optimist and I am holding out that that means that none of them were declined and all of them are still kind of Schrodinger sessions. Neither 
alive nor dead. I, my optimism may be false, but if I even if I don't have an opportunity to speak, really excited to to be out there and and just be in person with so many of the people I know in the ecosystem, you know, connecting with with clients and friends. So should be exciting for sure. Well, awesome. Well, Dane, I think this was a great show. I really appreciate it. And we'll chat soon. Absolutely. Have an awesome day, Fred. You too. Well, everyone, we hope you enjoyed episode six of Banking on Disruption. Don't forget, you can find show notes and a full transcript of the show on our website, bankingondisruption.com. If you liked what you heard today, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. New episodes drop every other Thursday, so we'll see you in two weeks. And in the meantime, don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram at at Banking on Disruption. Until next time, this is Fred Cavena wishing you success in your digital pursuits.